Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Brian Krim about his excellent new book, Planet Auschwitz, Holocaust Representation in Science Fiction, Horror Film, and Television. Brian, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's great to speak to you once again. Yes, it's great to have you back. Um, For all our listeners who are uh, familiar with the podcast, uh, Brian was on our show a couple of years ago talking about his was it your first book, Project Paperclip? It's the second book. Second book. Um, well, we're in for a fun episode today. So, but Brian, uh, if you could just refresh our listeners and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of history at the University of Lynchburg. That's in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. And it's a small liberal arts college that's, you know, getting bigger. So now we're a university. I teach the European history courses, Holocaust, uh, film and history and the methodology course, since I've been there since uh, 2008. Uh, so let's turn to this new book. Um, first, I want to ask, how'd you come up with the idea? Really, I think a lot of us in German studies and Holocaust studies are lucky enough to participate in some of the seminars run by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And they did one in 2015 specifically on Holocaust cinema. And it was run by a uh, Stephen Carr and Stuart Liebman. Um, And so we did, you gather 20 or so scholars from around the world and in different stages of their career. And we really got into uh, archival footage as well as classic cinema and your Eastern European film. And we covered the gamut and, and most of us were familiar with pieces of it, but not all of it. And as I sat through that seminar, I wound up really contributing a lot of references to to pop culture and how these images we've been studying are filtering down into what might be some might call lowbrow culture or at least just you know not not classic cinema and i wanted to know why i found that interesting and many of my uh, seminar participants felt the same way and rather than discourage us uh stuart and stephen encouraged us to really investigate this and that was the genesis of the idea and when i then used that that experience to create a Holocaust cinema course for our honors program. My students had the same reaction, and and you know they're watching different shows, and they're and I'm teaching them about you know Schindler's List and uh, Shoah and you know all the things you're supposed to do, and they're and they brought up the same things. Why are these images filtering into things like The Walking Dead or Westworld or why whatever it is? And I suddenly realized I need to get into this deeper. And I'm a consumer of pop culture. I love it, but I want to theorize it now. I want to actually investigate this phenomena and, and see if it's more than just uh, lazy writing or Nazi exploitation, but there's something deeper going on. And that really encouraged me to, to take these topics seriously and, and broadly, as you can see in the coverage of the book. Yeah. And I, I think it's important for our listeners to know that, um, this is a very serious academic book. This isn't just um, 
<laughs> you know, you going through individual TV shows and movies and saying, well, there's Nazis there and there's Nazis there. This is this is this is a real um, this is a real scholarly look at, at, at this at this issue. And so that leads me to my first question. Um, how. First of all, should Holocaust and Nazi imagery and things be used in pop culture, television, movies? Um, and how would you say it can be done well or done badly if it should be used at all? You know, when I, in the introduction, I, I kind of set the stage by saying, look, I, I am a historian. I'm not a film and media person. I, I'm a, a happy wanderer in the world. And I, and I do not want to be the gatekeeper of what is, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? Uh, as I think as historians who, whose work delve into pop culture occasionally, we, we have to you know, have a, a fine balance between being uh, scholars that are observing a phenomenon and, and judging it. So I, so I don't try to judge. I, I, but I want, I wanted to understand. Uh, I wanted to comment on the fact that it is happening, whether I approve of it or not. Uh, I actually have come around. I used to think, you know, as, when I was a younger scholar, and and following the steps of of giants, you you tend not to want to rock the boat, and you and and I think Holocaust studies has always been sort of rather conservative and and protective of the topic. As I've gotten older, I I have gone the opposite way and say anything that can engage the public, including my students, who many of them have not thought about uh, the Holocaust or or that period of history very seriously. If you can engage them in a hook like horror and science fiction. And show that these images that they are consuming daily or even in video games actually have a context that matters and can be relatable. Then I say go for it because I'm trying anything I can to get their attention and, and maybe get them on the, the path of investigating the topic seriously. And I think very well done science fiction and horror uh, that takes the context seriously and, and at least um, – you know, gets into the writing to, in a sense to, to bring it together in a meaningful way. It's an excellent way to engage um, the educated public or the or students in general. Um, now, the question of how do you do it well is uh, also hard to answer. I think what happens is you have to look at the writers and the directors and see if they're doing it if they're referencing this imagery because they're lazy. Um, or simply out for shock value, or have they actually themselves done the research and uh, are making using the Holocaust as an entryway to make broader, important points referencing uh, current events? And and I tried and I cover both. I cover the very bad, trashy stuff because that's important to study as well, and highlight what I think are really meaningful contributions that uh, stand the test of time. Yeah, uh, and th that leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you. Do you. There are so many things you could have picked from to analyze in this book. Um, how, how did you come up with a list? Did you, did you start off with a, a number in your head and then just whittled it down um, you know, to keep the book within a reasonable page length? Or did you go in knowing there was certain things you really wanted to look at and didn't have to do too much paring down? You know, I think as authors, we're all incredibly frustrated by not having an endless page limit. And we want to ask our, our university presses, who, of course, are oh so rich, why can't you just let me <laughs> write what I want? Uh, so, you know, I, I knew I was going to have to limit the coverage. And I didn't want to 
do, as you said at the beginning, kind of the scattershot approach of, oh, there's Nazis here, there's Nazis there. Of course, you could do that. You could have an endless encyclopedia. Uh, so what I did is, is first go with things that I knew or that I watched <laughs> and in great detail. It seems like if you're going to talk about the zombies, you do have to cover The Walking Dead in great detail. Um, but I also would, uh, with the introduction, I, I highlight Weimar, classic Weimar films that, that set the stage for the, the two genres I cover, horror and science fiction. And of course, there's a wealth in, in Weimar cinema. So in a way, I used what I saw as the legacies of films like Metropolis and Nesferatu and Gollum and or even classic, you know, the classic World War One film, Jacques, uh, as and, and say, if I can trace the imagery from those films into um, popular series and, and films that that are, you know, in the 70s, 80s and to the present, then I'm, I have a way to at least manage just how much material I'm covering. Um, and and that, so I it didn't I didn't plan it that way, but that's how it evolved. And I realized, OK, rather than try to cover it all, acknowledge that I never will be able to, that I hope others will pick up where I left off and um, start with what I think are the legacies of, of Germanic films to begin with that that show up over and over again. Also, Nazi films that borrow from Weimar films and recycle imagery there in a negative way. So in a way, it was a it was a natural choice to to look at classic Weimar films, see how that imagery filters through the decades and highlight that particular um, focus. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the Weimar films uh, to start. Um, really explain to to the listeners, um, one, what what sort of characteristics they have and two, how they sort of lead you in to the rest of your story. You know, I, and again, I talked about standing on the, 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 the shoulders of giants. Of, of course, anyone looking at, at Weimar film has to start with the very first real, uh, you know, great analysis of it, or at least you know, fascinating analysis of it. It doesn't stand the test of time really, but Siegfried Krakauer and a lot of Eisner's work on how expressionism was this uh, cry for help and the uh, cultural uh, decadence and decline of, of German society. And those, I, I looked at those readings uh, for great discussions of Metropolis and Nesferatu and, and Gollum and um, Do- the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, knowing that so much great work has been done since then that repudiates their analysis as kind of simplistic. But I was fascinated by how they were kind of doing what I uh, is attempting in this book, which is to find signs and signifiers of 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 a, a of a culture and wrestling with trauma. And of course, all Weimar films trauma go back to World War One, and expressionism was a way to uh, ex, ex, deal with the emotions and of this trauma and work through it in unorthodox ways. And I found that the horror and, and Metropolis as the classic science fiction film is uh, always referencing this uh, open wound of the war and from the perspective of veterans, from the perspectives of the public, and uh, and the artistic community is reacting to it. And we know that through film and through uh, literature and through music. We all you know those of us who, who study this trade can see it everywhere. But I also noted just how much anti-Semitic imagery would appear in these films. 
and how the Nazis themselves would recycle it. And of course, I reference the work of Eric Kurlander's great book, uh, Nazi Monsters, who was writing this around the same time I was, and he had a lot of good discussions about uh, this phenomena. And uh, and seeing this as a real, um, you know, a real entry point into to looking at the next generation to follow Weimar film, and that includes Nazi film and its immediate aftermath. Yeah, and what you mentioned some of the films that you you looked at. Um, did you investigate some of the other themes that maybe come up? Like in Metropolis, is sort of also really highlights the inequalities of of European society. Um, did you did you look at that kind of stuff as carefully, or did you or no? Did you acknowledge, you acknowledge it and then sort of move on? Yeah, oh, I do. Yeah, because I think that the idea of uh... First of all, you know, Metropolis is, is a classic example of this being so muddled because so many people are... First, the editing is all off. We all know there's many versions of it. It's uh, Fritz Long and, it's, and his writer, his wife, uh, Thea von Harbaugh, who wrote the, the novel. Um, her ideology was you know, very pro-Nazi. <laughs> he, of course, was not. And you can see her influence and his influence um, in the film, and it makes it part one of the reasons why it's muddled. But things like the... Uh, the division of society, the sphere of what capitalism can do, uh, and creating the worker machine as a, as essentially kind of like a zombot, uh, is is all over the film. But it also speaks for this need of the great mediator. And so one of the things I highlight is, and I'm not the first one to observe it, but this this character of, of Freighter who is supposed to marry emotion with machine as a great mediator for a glorious new society is something that immediately Goebbels himself identified as a way to uh, characterize the Fuhrer. And, and so he openly wanted Fritz Long to make films that continued this message. Uh, and it was, you know, we know that Fritz Long was given you know, the option of taking over the German film studios uh, with under Goebbels' direction, he chose not to. So, we, so in, and authorial intent is always tricky. And one of the things I try to respect in the book is, is not to, um, you know, limit myself to uh, to determining authorial intent and see not what what the director particularly wanted, but how it is going to be recycled and perceived um, by the public. And in the case like Metropolis, the mediator image is something the Nazis themselves wanted to promote for themselves. And I found that to be uh, the case in many of these films. Nesferatu, for example, was not meant to be an anti-Semitic um, fairy tale, but it certainly played into the hands of Nazi filmmakers who like to use that imagery in something like, for example, Yud Seuss, you know, a, in, their, in their version of things, a modern-day vampire. Um, that That's kind of what I uh, try to trace in, in, these, in the Weimar films through successive films is this imagery is, is always there. It can either be an arsenal or it can be a treasure trove, but it is both. Um, yeah. Let me ask you very quickly about, about Nazi films. I, I think our, I think most listeners can sort of figure out what most Nazi films are about, but um, it, you, how do you, you've mentioned a couple of times that they sort of borrow and repackage things from Weimar films. Like if you were to describe Nazi films just very briefly, like what certain characteristics do they have? One of the things you have to acknowledge is that the that it's difficult to discern a, a break between Weimar and Nazi film because many of the same people are in the studios and behind the camera and behind the you know aren't the actors as well. So 
it's it's not and Goebbels himself was very skilled at, at acknowledging that the best propaganda is not overt it is subtle and he loved genre films so as we all know the Nazis continued to make you know hundreds and hundreds of genre films comedies drama drama uh, adventure films all with a you know the message messages promoting national socialism but the thing that really sticks out is the monumental scale. And that's what I think attracted them to someone like Fritz Long and Metropolis. It's, it is the fascist aesthetic has already been established in cinema and cinema is custom made to promote a fascist aesthetic, monumental scale, grandiose uh, sets and uniforms and acting. And Goebbels always understood that the best propaganda has to be uh, not obvious. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And so a film like Jude Seuss, which is really a costume drama uh, disguised as a raving anti-Semitic film, we look at it today and obviously it's over the top. But for audiences, it wasn't. It was really this um, you know, very expensive costume drama with actors they recognized and, a, and an anti-Semitic subtext. Whereas something like Fritz Hitler's The Eternal Jew, that horrible documentary, as they call it, is just turned audiences off. So one one way that you can really describe Nazi film is that it is the continuation of, of genre films that came decades earlier. Okay, so let's 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 jump up now into the second chapter of your book um, about zombies. <laughs> um, so you you focus on two major works: you, The Walking Dead, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with. And uh, and then the, and Musulman. I, I wonder if we could start with Musulman because I don't think that's something a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah, the 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 Musulman is a. I think it's most associated with Primo Levi's uh, survival in Auschwitz, or if no, if this is a man work, where he's identifying what become really the the mass of the of the camp, which are these after four months, really in a in a camp like Auschwitz or or any uh, concentration camp, the human body is really just reduced to nothingness, to, as he called it, kind of a, a shamble of just nerves and limbs moving un from just uncontrollably, from, from starvation, from the beatings, from the environment. And that this becomes really a symbol of the camp itself as, as this anonymous mass of humanity with, with the spark gone. And the Musulman was what... Um, the Nazi guards would call this sort of figure as they it meant um, a Muslim in the sense that it was, you know, these people look like they're always bent over praying. That was the genesis of the term. Uh, different camps had different words for it, but they all have this figure throughout uh, the literature, throughout the documents, throughout the memories, throughout the testimony we have from survivors. The, the Muslim is always there. And it is a, when I, you know, as a Holocaust studies scholar, you read about this um, Muslim figure, and it immediately comes out as sounding like a zombie, someone who has no, uh, just a, a body, a corpse that moves. And when liberators came to the camps, American liberators of Soviet, they used the same language, walking dead uh, in particular, or zombie or uh, just variations on that theme because they had no other way to reference what they're seeing. It was that nothing, nothing had been, uh, no one could conceive of that to begin with. And I found that that's a, an excellent way to describe um, the connection between the Muslim and zombie, the zombie genre. 
and find that so many authors and directors and screenwriters are themselves making those connections. And so why, I want to investigate why and how and what does it say about the memory of the camps that it is fodder for these, uh, this particular genre. Before we talk a little bit more about that, um, maybe just give the listeners a few examples. We'll talk about The Walking Dead now. Um, a few examples of where this imagery shows up. Like, so if they turn on the show, um, give them some like things that they could look at if they're not as familiar with this, with <clears throat> with the Holocaust or something. Some things that they could sort of see, um, and help make it more right. clear for them. Now, I think um, the and something like uh, the Walking Dead, or even you know, of course George Romero is the the father of of the zombie film. Uh, the idea of just the the a shuffling automaton with no with just their ba- only desire, of course, is to feed. It, it, you would see um, a body that is broken down, that is moving, either usually in the, the zombie scenario very slowly and, sh- and and a shuffling way, but you have others where they're like, more animated and, and faster and more dangerous. But that tends to be this. Uh, at first, they, they're what you're afraid of. They're they're the uh, thing you're running from, but in so many other cases, they just become the background, and they just become something to pity. And I think that's also important that the way uh, the you know the zombies are portrayed is often you're sad for them, and and the sense that they become just part of the background as well. And I think that's really uh, something that goes back to the earliest zombie films, where um, you have veterans from the first world war depicted in this way shuffling nonsensical there it's almost like a class of people you pity but you're afraid to become one of them and that's the heart of the zombie terror is that they're too much like us we and, and that's also what survivors of the camp uh, who talk about the musulman they tend to distance themselves from that crowd of of survivors or people who die or perish they're saying since we're not like them and that's the heart of the zombie film is we're not like them, but the fear is that we could easily become them. You also mentioned in the, in the, in the book, in the, in that chapter that the, the zombies um, almost become more like witnesses to what the characters are going through and sort of you discuss the idea of, um, you know, that these characters, particularly in the walking dead live in this gray zone. Um, and they're they're going through their own like moral issues as they go through the show, and and, and the zombies are almost in the background. Yeah, and I think the first and the, the idea of the witness, the complete witness, is something also Levy talks about. It for so many first decades after after the Holocaust is over, and I think in the period of after the Eichmann trial, where the, the testimony becomes just a, a torrent, and people are are fascinated with it. Levy found that he was bothered by the fact that people didn't mention the, the Muslim that they were, like you say, just background or continued to be dehumanized. And his argument was all, and as cynical as he was, of course, is I'm alive and we're all alive because we are, we did horrible things to survive. The Muslim are the ones who are the true witnesses because they have perished. They, uh, they lived, they went to the, to the, uh, the bottom of the well and came up, Short and we survived because we did things that were unjust and uh, we lived in the gray zone. And so he, he gives the, the Muslim a, a kind of point of 
pride in saying that they they're the ones who truly are the only ones who can talk about the experience of the camps. And that becomes a sense. And first of all, The Walking Dead, why does Robert Kirkman, the creator of the comic book, call it The Walking Dead? Well, he specifically is acknowledging that this is a Holocaust reference. He knew that that's what survivors were called in places like Israel and Israeli society. You would, they, the Walking Dead were sometimes what people called um, survivors in the 50s and 60s even. And I found that fascinating that he would, he would use that as a point of departure. Uh, but that's what happens in the show. Is that in the first few episodes, you know, seasons even, you're afraid of the zombies. And then if you've been following, if people want to follow the show for 10 years now, and maybe not a lot of people are still doing that, it is humanity that is frightening in and, and every single way. And the zombies are literally just witnessing the desperate moral choices of, of people and, and are judging them silently. And, I, and that's meant to be a theme in the show. And I think it's a theme of every successful zombie narrative is that the zombies themselves are watching us. And, and that I think is powerful and, and frightening in its own way. Uh, <clears throat> this, this is probably a good, a good time to transition to my next question. Um, and it focuses on your second chapter and it's about historical trauma. Um, and I, I, I found this chapter particularly interesting, um, and I, I admit that I have not actually ever seen The Leftovers. Um, but so uh, explain explain to us what you mean when you say that um, um, historic trauma like the Holocaust confounds representation and influences the, uh, the depictions of the survivors. I'm sorry, oh, maybe we'll have to back up. I, I didn't get the last part. Can oh, you I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, you, you say in the book, um, historical, uh, historic trauma like the Holocaust confounds representation and influences the, uh, influences the depictions of survivors. Right. So there, again, I, I've, I'm looking at uh, scholars like uh, Michael Rothberg and, and uh, Lawrence Barron and people who write about uh, the Holocaust as this great rupture and representation and how do uh, artists and historians and scholars and or anyone can confront the fact that that there's this um, gulf between the event itself and how to represent it and and one of the things that people who critique uh, film and, and literature and art related to the holocaust always have to uh, really contend with is you know is if we can't truly understand what happened then how can we continue to use forms of representation that that are just what we've always used right what how do you uh adequately represent this as a great rupture and i think the best um the, the best films and the best types of representation take chances and and are used unorthodox ways to represent the rupture and i think uh i look at um the, the film my i, I used to contrast with the leftovers is the pawnbroker. You know, the pawnbroker is one of the, was a real revolution in film for a lot of reasons. One, it was, it was, uh, it's had the first bit of nudity in an American film for ever. Uh, it also is also a, uh, um, a, a depiction of a survivor that is not pristine, that doesn't treat them as some sort of, um, symbol of hope or reconciliation or goodness. It is a haunted, uh, traumatized, imperfect, and some some cases downright nasty depiction of somebody 
who only what you would expect for someone who had survived uh, the camps. And that I was a real breakthrough because so many awesome times the, the survivors depicted as a symbol of something else and not a real individual, a flawed individual. And the point is to show that this trauma never goes away. It haunts them. It haunts us for ignoring that person or not being able to understand it. And, and uh, that's why I chose the pawnbroker to coincide with uh, the leftovers, which is all about an entire society that is undergoing mass trauma. Um, but I'll stop there for you can pick up there. Yeah. I, I was in, I was interested in, in this, um, this concept. So the, the leftovers for those who haven't seen it, um, essentially the idea is that, uh, I think what is 130 million people in America just suddenly disappear. Uh, um, yeah, it's globally, it's 2% of the global population just disappears one day. Yeah. No explanation. It just happens. Right. And then they, and then the show sort of deals with how the people who are left sort of cope with this and try to figure out why this happened. They, you know, they debate whether this is the rapture or, um, or it's not or, or whatever. Um, so how in that show do they, do they begin to cope with what's going on with the, with the trauma that they're experiencing and, and, and how is it, what things do you see in there that are being taken directly from the Holocaust? And that, that's what, that, when I saw that show, I, I, it's not something you really look for. It, it's, it's very, it is a, a critical darling, but I, I, I was fascinated with the concept of the show. When I watched it, I immediately thought of the pawnbroker. I went, these are people who like a hol- like the Holocaust have survived something they can't explain to anyone else. I mean, the only difference is that the entire world has, has suffered through it as opposed to you know, one community. But the, but the idea of, of not being able to articulate pain and that, the, that a rupture is so great that it defies every, you know, your concept of knowledge and time and space and, and how you live a life. But I, I said immediately, this is a, an analog to the Holocaust. Now, of course, in the show, the novelist Tom Perutta, who wrote, he wrote the book and helped with the screenplay and Damon Lindelhoff famous for uh, lost among other things, they were making a direct reference to, to nine 11. And, uh, and you can see that all in the show, they have a department of the Southern departure and they have all the, it's a community outside of New York. And one day this event happens and what do you do? So I get that on the, on the superficial level, it is nine 11, but, but the concept of trauma and guilt and loss and rebuilding a life is, uh, what what other event do we have to compare to, to to use as a resource for that understanding than the Holocaust? And I do know that they did. They were also inspired by by the pawnbroker uh, as a case study of what someone who who suffers an enormous loss that no one can understand. How do they? What do they go through? And um, I I, I was so taken by that comparison that. I, I investigated further, and, and someone like Lawrence Barron really helped me. Uh, he's a great historian of, of, of uh, Holocaust film, and I went to a conference uh, called Film and History where I made these comparisons, and he really encouraged me, as everyone in that audience did, to, to take this further and look at how uh, this film, and the show many of them haven't seen, but they were intrigued, but how do you represent trauma and how do you debate the ethics of representation 
And a film like The Pawnbroker and The Leftovers are, are very good at, at acknowledging that formal ways of representing things the way we're used to, linear narrative and, and kind of uh, bringing order to chaos, in some ways minimizes that trauma. And what's great about The Pawnbroker is that it's got flashbacks and it's, and it's uh, jarring to watch at times. And that's because that's what's going on in the mind of Rod Steiger, uh, Saul Nazerman, the protagonist. And that, and I see that play out very, very deeply in throughout three seasons in The Leftovers, because that is also a trauma that no one can understand. No one can. Uh, and, and it always becomes irrelevant to ask why it happened. It's just, how do you, where do you go from here? And that seems to be the plight of the survivor. And I found the, the comparison powerful, intriguing, and I was encouraged to to investigate it further. And, and it's my personal favorite chapter for that yeah. reason. Yeah, I, w- I want to thank you for really explaining that because I think out of all of the the media that you chose, I think The Leftovers was the least sort of obvious. <laughs> um, sort of, um, and I think, I think having you explain it in that way was, is really helpful. Um, so let's, let's move along to the next chapter, sort of um, maybe something more straightforward, sort of Nazis as monsters. Um, and as a, you know, Nazism as a, as a trope of evil, you know, sort of like a stand in uh, for evil. Uh, so as obvious as it sounds, um, let's talk about the evolution of, of that idea. When, when did that, so when did Nazism become safe enough that you could just sort of use it as a stand-in <laughs> uh, for evil? Yeah, I think maybe, <laughs> I think that's one, one of the first parts of this. I mean, immediately Nazis were, were monsters. They're usually human monsters, but within a, a short time, uh, you know, less than 20 years, they're showing up as, as themselves monstrous. And the idea is, and I borrowed the Saul Friedlander's excellent, essays, uh, reflections on Nazism as, a, as an inspiration. Because he was writing in the, the early 70s, uh, Saul Friedlander, you know, is a surprise winning historian and a survivor himself, uh, but, but someone with, obviously with a lot of authority to, to talk about what is ethical representation of, of Nazism. And in the 70s, he observed this phenomena of Nazi exploitation, and it really bothered him. And and while I'm not a gatekeeper and he has a right to be, he was concerned about this idea of, of maybe this is something that we want, that somehow we want to revel in uh, this evil that is gone. And, and by looking at schlock uh, sexploitation and bad horror films and whatever was going on, and especially Italian and American film specifically, uh, maybe this is something that says bad things about us. And I found that to be a great point of departure for the chapter. And, and to look at uh, that, you know, deeper than just judging whether we should use Nazi monsters as fodder for pop culture, but ask why does it show up so continuously and, and internationally, France, uh, um, Germany, Spain, America, all contending with this idea of, of the Dutch, you know, of, of the Nazi monster that is yet to be defeated. And it's about an, in, in, uh, an inability to come to grips with the past. Now, we know this great German word is coming to grips with the past, but every country is, is, is trying and failing to do that. And so many great authors I read made the point that this uh, phenomenon of the Nazi monster in culture is about an inability to grapple with their own historic crimes. Um, even if the crimes have nothing to do with the Nazi past, the Nazis stand, as, stand in for a symbol of your own society's inability to to uh, wrestle with their demons. And I find that 
most commonly seen in the, the idea of the zombie. Once again, I bring up zombies and put them in this chapter differently because they're a different sort of Nazi uh, zombie. They're a zombie that that is meant to, um, you know, to to judge you and to frighten you and to uh, and to coming to grips with your own crimes. What were some of the things that you, uh, some of the movies and shows you used for this chapter? Well, I started with the, I think the earliest Nazi zombie films were, or in the early seventies, you had one called Shockwaves, which had uh, Peter Cushing from Star Wars fame, uh, which is a really simplistic story, but it's enormously influential. The idea of an, of just Nazi super soldiers that have been laying in wait in the Caribbean for, for decades suddenly come up and uh, out of out of nowhere and terrorize people. Uh, what does that say about you know our 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 lingering fears about um, our you know the past? The, something that just can, the the famous line in that film was the sea spits up what it can't keep down, and that seems to be a theme with the Nazi zombies. There's one called Night of the Zombies in 1981. Uh, there's where it's a uh, some chemicals keeping the Nazi soldiers alive in the Bavarian Alps and they're killing tourists. And, and there's always some um, reason to keep them around and they stalk uh, the contemporary generation, almost reminding them of, you know, why we're here, what, what you fail to contend with, what we believe, what we have, uh, what made us is still out there. Uh, Dead snow, I think is the most famous one. That's actually the image for the cover. It's a, a Norwegian film from 2009 that is a cult, a cult classic. And there it's about Norway's complicity in during the occupation period, that this idea that uh, Norway more or less, uh, except for a small resistance, was was you know complicit in or collaborated with uh, this Nazi occupation. And so the whole thing is this extended metaphor of Norway for decades, ignoring this part of their history and it coming back to literally consume their teenagers in the snowy Alps or the snowy fjords. I find that idea of a um, of the zombies representing a failed attempt to mourn as well as to come to grips with your own historic crimes, a fascinating and, and dominating theme in dozens and dozens of films. Uh, do you also think that Sort of, um, and and I know that Gabriel Rosen um, Rosenfeld just wrote a book about this. But sort of fears of a Nazi resurgence. Do you think that that plays a role in why Nazis keep showing up in movies, and TV shows? Yeah, it's absolutely. It's it's a fear that not only the Nazis themselves will return, but that our own society is so easily um, ripe for the same takeover. That it's not, just, and the Nazis are just the most obvious, and therefore, you know, the, the most terrifying version of this. But and the idea that the institutions we love and hold dear can so be easily turned to create evil, which uh, is, you know, the classic uh, both horror and sci-fi story, is, is that that is a theme that runs throughout the idea of the Nazi monster. It's not so much that the Nazis are still out there; is that we, as a society, supposedly far removed from them are vulnerable to the same impulses. Mm. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the Anne Frank, I am Anne Frank episode <laughs> of the American uh, horror story. I, I was not familiar with this. Um, yeah. I, I, first of all, uh, 
just give us a, like a brief synopsis of it and then sort of let's analyze it a little bit. Yeah, I think American Horror Stories is enormously popular. It's one of the reasons why I, I chose it for the book. And it's and, and the season, each season is set in a different place and the same cast usually is there, but it's a different scenario. So season two is called Asylum and it takes place in the early 1960s. And, um, and an asylum, of course, is a great place to have all your the perpetual fears of American science society play out. And, and that's what the point of American Horror Story really is. So this period of the 1960s uh, is, is also coincides with the aftermath of the Eichmann trial, which was enormously significant, popular, sparked a real interest in the Holocaust. It coincides with uh, the emerging racial violence, and not that there wasn't always racial violence, but at least awareness of it in American society. Uh, and it also has the theme of the Nazi next door. So one of the doctors who runs the asylum or the the medical part of the asylum was a Nazi doctor, not unlike Dr. Mengele, who came over via, guess what, Project Paperclip. He was was an American, you know, uh, uh, find, and and he conducts all these horrific experiments on the people who are in the, the asylum. So one day, a woman who looks like to be in her, um, mid thirties shows up to the asylum and is claiming to be Anne Frank. So therefore she must be crazy. Well, the way the, this two episode arc develops is that you begin to think that she really is Anne Frank, uh, that she tells this convincing story about how, you know, she survived, uh, uh, the, the Holocaust and hid in the streets of Berlin and married a U S soldier and came to the United States. And it's a very you know, well done fascinating story. Uh, my favorite line is Jessica Lang, who's the kind of the evil nurse who runs a nun slash nurse who runs the other part of the asylum, has her in her office and goes, Anne Frank, is it? Well, m- millions of American school children will be relieved to know that you're still alive. I found that to be just a, you know, the fact that we all know, I think growing up uh, after this period, that that was really our first exposure to the Holocaust was the diary of Anne Frank. And the fact that the show, uh, you know, had, took it on, head on and played with the idea that she actually uh, not only survived, but is now gets to confront the doctor who tormented her, which is this Nazi doctor and we're now working at the asylum, got into some themes we see in other classic horror films like Rosemary's Baby of, you know, do we believe women and, and how do we treat women in a medical environment? And here's the case of someone like... Uh, and, and Anne Frank claiming that this man is, is a Nazi. He tried to torment me. She's not believed, of course, and he's, he gets to lobotomize her and so that her memory is literally annihilated. And so we're left watching the show, seeing not quite sure if we actually did see the Anne Frank that she's claiming to be, or was she really insane? But in any case, she did finger the right guy. And it gets to this idea of, of, uh, of the construction and the annihilation of memory. and. And then in this, this sense, it's literally Anne Frank. And I think it was jarring. It was controversial. It got a lot of people upset when it came out. But I noticed there was a lot of actually, um, you know, press like the forward and, and some other uh, Jewish media outlets actually liked that they did this storyline because it at least put the notion of, of memory and, and, and the, uh, the, 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 the Holocaust in general in a, in a popular culture context and, and found it to be you know, jarring, but also uh, useful for promoting it. And I, 
I found that response pretty interesting in itself. Do, do you find that um, typically when when sort of stories like this are done well, there seems to be sort of a positive, a more overwhelmingly positive um, response, particularly, you know, amongst Holocaust scholars, you know, people who are interested, survivors? Or, um, is that something that's changed over the last several decades, sort of this you mentioned this the, the the Holocaust piety argument in the introduction. Um, has that something that's waned? I think it absolutely has, and and I for one welcome it. I, I but again, and, and you find that most of these outlets and, and commentators are really good judges of the quality of the shows doing it. So the the early Walking Dead, you have um, uh, there are Jewish commentators who who, who wanted to actually use the show as a way to talk about the Holocaust and what it means to be, to live in a gray zone, to be traumatized, to find that you have no safety in this world. And, and, and I think at the beginning, the walking dead was like that. Battlestar Galactica is also credited for delving into issues like, you know, genocide or an occupation and the morality of, of doing one or the other. Um, and then this uh, example of the Anne Frank episode, most people were, were willing to give, the writers a wide berth there. And I, and I think that's only possible in a world after the first generation of survivors has sort of passed. Uh, so Elie Wiesel, for example, was, did see himself as a, as a gatekeeper and reluctantly wanted to use film, even what we consider this classic Holocaust cinema. He was very reluctant to, to even have it out there in the world. I, I think it'd be far more difficult to get away with some of these things in the 60s and 70s and now and that's not saying it's all good but i think the first of my book is to highlight the the exceptional uh examples of of this representation as well as what i consider to be um opportunistic trash as well and they both need to be talked about <laughs> that's just the reality they we, we they both need to have that coverage otherwise we risk them just you know surviving in the ether as as a uh, easily disposable and easily manipulated. Sure. Um, yeah, let, let's, let's turn to the next uh, section um, where you sort of talk about, um, you know, demons, antichrists, um, and, and talk about this idea that, again, Nazis sort of standing in for these sort of evil forces, um, you know, Hitler is the antichrist or, um, I'm particularly interested in the first movie you talk about, the the boys from Brazil. Right. Yeah, and I, I one of the things I noted, and I was encouraged to by my first or second reader. I, I don't. Luckily, I did not have the, the terrible second reader problem. They they both had, had great things to say. So I'm not quite sure who that person was, but they really wanted me to to look at the idea of um, of these the classic horror films we all love and and acknowledge as great. Uh, whether it's The Exorcist or uh, Rosemary's Baby, and you know Stanley Kubrick's uh, films, you know that that these that they're Jewish directors, or at least they have a Jewish. Um, they may not see themselves as particularly devout, or or maybe they're culturally Jewish, but there tends to be something about these horror films and the connection to the fact that the the directors were Jewish, and they they wanted me to make that an explicit sort of a an analysis, and so I did, and I, and I and I was I'm glad because what I find is that this uh, uh their their take on evil 
whether they were themselves directly impacted by the Holocaust, like Roman Polanski, or not at all, like a William Friedkin or uh, Lee Kubrick did lose a lot of his family, but, but you know, grew up in, in New York, that, that there is, it weighs on them in ways that uh, are, are shown in, in these films. And to them, evil is, uh, is absurd. In some cases, it's darkly comic if you're Polanski. Uh, or even Friedkin kind of thought he initially thought he was making somewhat of a a, a, a dark comedy with with The Exorcist in some ways, but there it, it, it weighs on them in the in the way that notes that for Americans in general, especially after the Eichmann trial, evil is going to always be synonymous with Nazis and the Holocaust, and even if there you have to really um, do some deep analysis of these films and to see explicit connections to the Holocaust. They're they're all around those films, and it's all about uh, what human failures have allowed this to happen. What have we done to let these demons in, and where has our society failed to uh, allow this evil to flourish? And usually, the answer revolves into some kind of uh, discussion of the failure of of uh, institutions and humanity's and unwillingness to. Um, confront the evil that can come from those institutions. And that, to me, is as, as explicit of a Holocaust metaphor as you can find. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, wanna, I, want, I want to turn quickly to something else because uh, I want to make sure that we get to every section. Um, I, I want to talk about your concept of astrofascism. Um, can you explain to us what that is? <laughs> um, and, and then we'll, I'll follow up. And so when when I was researching my previous book on the Our Germans Project Paperclip, uh, you know this the incorporation of German scientists into to the American national security state, I kept running into this phrase astrofuturism, and how Werner von Braun was synonymous with this cultural movement that coincided with the space race and even earlier, where uh, and you know the like Cold War phenomena, where. Um, Science and technology, and particularly anything relating to space, was was uh, a particularly powerful narrative about American exceptionalism. That you know the future is ours, and we're going to guide it. And 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 I found it interesting that there are so many Germans in the in the mix of this American conception of of astrofuturism. But the Disney shows where von, Werner von Braun would promote space travel and and NASA when it was created. Uh, the novels of, of Heinlein and the, the, the sci-fi that comes out of this period where they're technically very accurate and, and almost ponderous to read because they're trying to be super accurate uh, coincides with a very you know powerful Cold War ideology about American victory. And and I and I wanted to note that in the, the first film I ever really wrote about seriously with with these topics, uh, which was Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, that there had to be a version of this called astrofascism. But the same ideas are present, except astrofascism is about the aesthetic. It's it's attractive. It's deadly. It creates the society that astrofuturism wants, which is a, a perfection, technologically brilliant, no want in the world, uh, absolute victory for for a you know essentially American culture. That that Paul Verhoeven's film Starship Troopers starts a phenomena, or not starts it, but I think typifies a an astrofascist future where all the things that that we um, associate with astrofuturism have become victorious, but through 
fascist means. And it's not just the aesthetic and the uniform, but just the way society is organized in many of these science fiction uh, scenarios is undoubtedly and unmistakably and openly fascist. And we're encouraged to almost to, be, to, to be attracted to it, to identify with it, and to enjoy it without any of the consequences of what we know the fascist ideology is actually about. That's the heart of most of Paul Verhoeven's films to begin with. Uh, and so I took the first one that I wrote about seriously, uh, which was Starship Troopers, as a way to look at other films that came before it and after it that continue this idea of, uh, of this astro-fascist aesthetic. Yeah, you, 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 you touch on some of the big ones, too, in this chapter. You, um, Star Wars um, um, and uh, Star Trek. Um, I had forgotten about that sort of old Star Trek episode where they, they're dressed up in, in Nazi uniforms. Um, and then something much more recent, you talk about the man in the high castle. Um, mm -hmm. How does that that fit into what you just said? Um, because that doesn't come off to me as, as much attractive. Um, right. No, I, yeah, I think um, with high castle, I knew I wanted to write about it. And I, was, and I debated about where to put it. And I think the reason I, I don't think it, it's not at all, and although in some ways it is a, an attractive society, it, it's trying to show you, I mean, for the people who are benefiting from it, but it's a world where, for example, the Germans can have perfected, you know, interplanetary travel as early as the 60s because they had Werner von Braun working all along, or there's these gleaming towers of, uh, of what might be functionalist but grandiose architecture. Uh, I, I thought more of the idea of of, of uh, relating to counterfactual history, that time itself can be manipulated and that the astrofascism is not only about a society that is so far removed, you don't have to think about the consequences, but and the idea of alternate realities where um, the, 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 the uh, fascist society, it's just really a thought experiment. What if the fascist society is absolutely victorious, what would it really look like, especially in the United States? And so I think High Castle is fascinating because it, it blends what we, we'd find and what we'd really see in, in the 1960s culture, right down to the architecture, with uh, the consequences of, of Nazi victory. And they spent a lot of, as I researched, a lot of time and effort um, recreating what they would, what, what Albert Speer would want to, want to have done. And what if he had just a, a blank slate to work with, and he, and this in this world he does. So, so to me, it, it just it fits in because of that idea of uh, of time itself being conquered by by a fascist society. Yeah, yeah. For those who haven't watched Man in the High Castle, particularly in season two when they go to Berlin, I mean, if you had laid out Albert Speer's plan for Germania, that this is what it would have looked like. Um, I, I think one of the things that has struck me about that show immediately. Uh, is is how many of the details they get right, and and how visually impressive um, the show really is. Um, yeah, I think you you would of course have to talk about it in, in any book like this. Um, uh, and it, it's a very entertaining show, um, I would say, maybe until the last couple of episodes. It, it is. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I think they they balance the uh, the morality of how you represent this world with. Uh, with just being in love with the aesthetics, I, I, you know, I think it's so a danger of astro fascist type of science fiction is that it can be so attractive that you get lured in and only the really, really intelligent 
directors and writers can make you think about why are you so attracted to this and point it out to you. And I think Verhoeven does that, I think, in a way High Castle does that. What I love about High Castle is that it shows how easily the United States could be, in fact, turned to this sort of society by leveraging our own racism, our own history, and, and seeing that it's not a huge departure to, to you know, aside from the standards that you see all around you, that, that of course, America has its own long racial past that can easily be leveraged to to do awful things as it has in the in our own history and and i i think they do a good job of uh pointing that out to us uh, similarly i think what i didn't get to write about it but plot against america is so terrifying uh you know philip roth's book is terrifying but the hbo show is is really and it reminded me of high castle in a lot of ways yeah i i would definitely recommend anybody who hasn't seen um plot against america yet it's um yeah, very good, very timely. Um, um, so we're coming up on an hour, but I definitely want to get to your last chapter because um, I want I want to talk about the notion um, of human cyborgs and how it connects to genocide. And we'll just talk about Battlestar Galactica um, just so they can get a little, we can get this chapter in. So, yeah, I think uh, Battlestar Galactica, like I think The Leftovers, was seen as they a um, really commentary on on 9/11 and the war in Iraq, particularly shows up here. I mean, it, we know that the um, Ronald D. Moore, who created this uh, reboot of of Battlestar Galactica, wanted to make it uh, less of a space opera and more of a you know a gritty uh, sci-fi show that that got into uh, as he put it, almost like West Wing type of storyline sometimes. Um, and I'm fascinated by the the Cylons in this and the relationship between the Cylons and humanity, because of course humans create Cylons in their own image and then the Cylons commit genocide against humans, seeing them as the ultimate threat. Uh, and, and because of the years of enslavement, uh, dec- you know, centuries of enslavement placed upon them. And I found that idea of, uh, of creating cyborgs that judge you and by committing genocide is one that has a long history, uh, starting with Metropolis, but also with the, uh, um, the subsequent series or the Terminator, of course, Blade Runner, we create these machines that evolve to the point of recognizing humanity as the threat. And both sides, both species try to commit genocide against one another. And I find Battlestar Galactica is something as a fascinating um, morality tale of, of, of laid out by Commander Adama at the beginning. It is who who are we? Who are we? Why do we have the right to exist? Why should we be victorious in this war? What have we done to deserve it? And that seems to be a, a long-running theme in the these cyborg-related shows is that these are the cyborgs, whether threatening or not, are are victims of humanity. And maybe what they're doing is really uh, achieving justice. <laughs> um, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners one or two major takeaways things that if you know if they pick listening to this podcast or when they pick up your book and read it what, what are some things you want them to you know take away you want them to stay with them yeah i want them i think what i want people to to think about is that you know, why is it that horror and science fiction are so popular and and with recycling holocaust imagery why do they uh um let me start over here. Oh, that's a bad way to do it. Okay. Okay. So what I'm 
what I want people to take from Planet Auschwitz is one, the, the, the illusion itself comes from the, the Adolf Eichmann trial. This idea of, of the survivor, in this case, it's uh, Yil Denor, uh, who, who, whose pen name is Kazetnik, uh, is, has this famous bit of testimony where he talks about that he is a survivor from another planet, that you cannot possibly understand what I went through, what we went through. We're in a different world. And I, I found that to be such a powerful illusion because it makes it seem that this, uh, that the world of the Holocaust is so far removed from our experience that, that it can't be understood. And, and so, of course, cultural representation struggles with that, uh, with that notion. And I think horror and science fiction have been some of the best places to, 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 uh, show trauma and loss and ideological perversion and industrial killing and the legacy of Nazism never truly disappearing, that these are very powerful genres to explore uh, this cultural representation. And I wanted people to, to think about what does it mean when we say that there's a, a return of history in these, these genres? Um, what is it? Why do we fear modernity and technology so much? And I think part of the reason is the legacy of the Holocaust. And why is Nazism's appeal so enduring? Uh, and what is it about these genres in particular that um, make it so appealing, yet also forces us to question why we're so attracted to it? Yeah, uh, w well said. Um, I think all important things to take away um, from this book. Um, but before I let you go, I want to ask you one final question. Now that this is done um, and it's out on the shelves and people can go out and get it, um, what are you working on now? Well, actually, I am putting together a podcast with an old colleague of mine from Rutgers University when we were in graduate school together, uh, Leah Paradis, who's sort of a modern British Empire historian at Slippery Rock. We, we both love film and pop culture, and we use it in class. And so we are creating a podcast this summer called Lies Agreed Upon, uh, a, po a podcast about history and pop culture. And it's not going to be, you know, we'll do, I guess, some sci-fi and horror, but it's, a lot of it is going to be... Um, just to, for our first season is really going to be the legacy of 9-11, for example. Like how does 9-11 affect cultural representation of, of history, of history of Islam, the history of terrorism, the history of espionage? What is it that, uh, how do we see that legacy play out in some of our favorite shows and, and movies? And so that's our planned first season and we're going to work on it over the next few months and see where it goes. So uh, when do you anticipate it's coming out? Well, with this, uh, the age of COVID, who knows exactly, but we are putting together some scripts and we have a good tech guy and I, I hopefully have some, some episodes ready by the fall. Great. Well, for all our listeners looking for a new podcast, look for that in the fall. <laughs> um, well, I want to thank Brian again for being on the show um, and for being willing to come back and, and talk about another book with us. Um, I, I, I really, really enjoyed this book, and I, I hope everybody that uh, is listening will go out and pick it up. Um, ebook, <laughs> get an ebook <laughs> um, right now. Um, but I want to remind everybody that the book title is "Planet Auschwitz: Holocaust Representation in Science Fiction, Horror, Film, and Television." Um, I also want to thank all of our listeners for coming back um, and listening to us, and we will see you all next time.